Welcome to season six of the Making a Marketer podcast with your hosts, Megan Powers with Event Marketing Partners and Powers of Marketing and Jen Cole with Gretemann Group and Xdan. This show is for all levels of experience talking marketing and business with the best guests in the industry. Two guarantees that we maintain you will learn and laugh. Here we go. Welcome to episode 109 of the Making a Marketer podcast. This is part one of a two-part show where we have a reunion and we invite our season five guests back as we kick off season six. Hi, Jen. How's your summer going? My summer has been very, very busy. We have had a lot to do this summer and it's been hot and it's been fun and making lots of memories. How about yours? Really good. It's been a light work summer, which is always nice, given how my spring was absolute insanity. Um, But (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's good. But, you know, conference season is in the fall. So things are are definitely picking back up again. But just, you know, like you trying to enjoy all the good little moments with friends and family. I've got two nieces coming into town this week, one of which might make a guest appearance on part two of recording later this week. So... All right. Excellent. So we have two main groups today. This will be a little bit shorter than our our reunion shows typically have been, but we have two wonderful guests with us from across the pond. One's in London or London-ish, right? London area. And the other is in Lisbon. Welcome to the show, Richard Porter and Angus Nelson. Hey, Megan. Hey, Jen. Hello. Jen, great to be here. So great to have you guys. We're so international. Oh, I, def- I definitely am London. It's not London-ish. Definitely in, oh, excellent. in London. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> London London and Lisbon. Yes. And, um, Angus, you made a life change. I want to tell the audience you were not in Lisbon the last time we Yeah, I was in Nashville, know. Tennessee. And uh, we coming out of COVID, we had made plans to move and go explore the world. Life is too short. And we'd always wanted to have international experience for our kids. And uh, we pulled the trigger. And so here we are in Lisbon. We got here in May. And so it's now been three months living in uh, a Portuguese-speaking land. So, tutu bane. <laughs> How's your Portuguese coming along? Good? Well, as I just said, tutu bane. Oh, oh yeah. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Obrigado. That's the only... There that's you go. Only, that's yeah. enough. That's enough. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> or please. Obrigado is please or thank you? Thank you. Is it it thank, you? thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So we're going to talk about their episodes. We're going to have them give their little quick who they are in case you miss their show. And then we'll talk about their episode a little bit. And so everyone can go back and listen. And then Jen will be asking our one big question for this year. So let's talk with you first, Richard. You were just here a few weeks ago. It was he and his one of his business partners, Craig, were on episode 108. And the topic of that show was connections through the human interaction of events. And so basically right up my alley in terms of, of events. So but let's tell your, give our listeners a quick who you are and then let's little recap. Sure. So yeah, I'm Richard Porter. I'm one of the managing directors at uh, Chief Nation. I've worked for the company for about 15 or 16 years or so. And I guess when when I first started working for the company, we were, we were only kind of four people or so, and it's kind of grown to about 40 now. So I've seen the company 
change. I've done a lot of jobs in the company, grown with the company because I was younger back then, obviously. And now, yeah, a couple of years ago, in fact, the week before the lockdown hit London, I decided to buy into the company with my partner and also my wife. So Craig, who was on the last podcast with me, and Laura, my wife, we bought shares in the company. So we're now sort of co-owners as well as work for the company. But my background is not particularly in marketing or events, but I've kind of found my way into this industry, but love it and enjoy my job you know, and I feel like I'm, I've am i found something that I'm good at. So that's probably why I stuck around for such a long time. Well, that's, yeah, key. You're good at it and you're enjoying it, right? Those are two key things. And so I, basically, it's funny because I look back on the show and like when I write about what the show was about, my biggest takeaway is that small events can have huge impact. You don't have to have 50,000 people at an event in order to help companies have impact on their bottom line. So let's back up a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the majority of the events that you guys are doing now. Or they, some of them happen in person, but they're basically online. And the idea is that you get sponsors to come in and host. Let's talk through that a little bit. How do you set these up? Sure. So, I mean, that we get our client base is mainly technology companies who are trying to sell their sort of technology wares into you know, large businesses. So we have worked with some really big names, you know, Microsoft, Adobe, AWS, people like that. And, you know, their size, of, I guess, um, the value of any particular deal that they might make by meeting someone that we introduced them to is pretty big. So they can get away with, you know, running very small events, paying, you know, a premium. And what they pay us to do is, is to get those people, those prospects to that event, organize the event, make sure the event happens, make sure the people turn up. And we've got a sort of format of event that we've trademarked under the brand Chief Wine Officer. And it's a an event that people come along to. We've got a community of people that we can call on to come along and enjoy a wine tasting and an evening of chatting about a business topic with people that might use a particular bit of software or be responsible for buying a bit of software for their company, talking to the people that create that software. So and what better way to kind of you know, lubricate the conversation, then introducing a few glasses of wine along the way with a, a wine taster that comes in and tells them about the wines as well. So it's uh, there's a bit of a fun element. It's not the, the main reason for coming along to a chief wine officer event, but the you know the the reason to come along is obviously to chat business, do a bit of networking, share a bit of thought leadership, and hopefully find out you know what some of your peers might be doing in a, in a particular space as well. For sure. Well, and they your customers keep coming back. So they're definitely yeah. they're seeing a return, right? Yeah. It's um like I say, you know, the, the the value of the I mean, if you add up different clients kind of look at our events in different ways to see whether they've been a success or not. The the kindest way that they <laughs> they look at the success of an event is to add up the value of each individual that's in the room of the size the average size of the deal that they would do. So you know if you've got fifteen people as a captive audience, you know to spend the evening with and tell them about your software, whatever it might do in a particular space, then it's kind of like having a meeting with fifteen people at the same time. You know, you know it's a good way of cementing or creating a business relationship around a fun format. You know, the chief wine officer events are quite fun. People tend to leave those events having had quite a nice evening, quite a nice memory that they can then associate with the guest sponsor, whoever it might be. So that when that guest sponsor then follows up a few days later and said, hey, you know, did you enjoy that wine? That was good, wasn't it? We had a nice evening, blah, blah, blah. Then what about let's uh, let's meet up and carry on the conversation and, you know, talk about how we might take things further. So it's a first date, if you like. <laughs> 
I was just going to say that. I remember you you guys saying that uh, (laughs) when we first recorded. So that's awesome. Yeah. As someone who hosts some of these events for you, I can um, attest to the fact that they have a great time and it's very casual. You know, everyone's just talking about their business needs and challenges. And then it's just like this really ripe environment for the company to help solve those problems for them. And then for each other too, from peer to peer, like you said. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. We have a guest from for group two who has arrived. But in the meantime, Angus, tell our listeners about yourself and then let and then we can talk a little bit about your episode. Well, sure. It's so great to be here, Megan Jen. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm Angus Nelson. I'm an executive men's performance coach. I help male leaders and entrepreneurs create holistic, full-spectrum success in their lives, whether it be in business or in life. I live in Lisbon, Portugal. I've been here, as I stated earlier, just for a few months, learning the land, uh, the lay of the land. And I have both group coaching, one-on-one coaching. My background was in marketing. And one of the things I have learned is that there's so much psychology involved in both sales and marketing. We talked about that on our show and happy to dive in again if you want to go there. Yeah. So actually, it's like I don't have children, but I imagine it's like picking a favorite child. But your show is my top three of our like all time best shows. Like, so if you have not listened to that, it is episode 90. Yeah. Angus was episode 90, had asked the right questions. I mean, for anything in life, it's so important. Obviously, for what I do with the podcasting and, you know, with events, asking the right questions is crucial. But but let's dig into that a little bit. Like, how does one know what's the right question? It's really about thinking through, you know, who it is that you're talking to. Oftentimes we ask questions from our own perspective. Like we project our opinions. We project what we're thinking. So for instance, you walk into a room, if you are, you know, someone who might be an introvert and something goes on and you're like, oh, if that happened to me, I would be so embarrassed. And then you go, it's like, oh, are you embarrassed? Are you? And maybe this person might be a completely different kind of personality. And they're just like, oh my God, that was amazing. They're a total extrovert. They don't take themselves seriously. And we look at that from just a small microcosm. And then we get into marketing, we do the same thing. Oh, if I'm going to market my product, they're going to think like this. And it's like, no, you're projecting how you would respond, how you think. You're not making data-driven decisions. You're not actually talking to the customer. And so how can you ask the right questions if you're not even talking to the right people? And so when we talk about, you know, what is this thing I'm I'm experiencing, you have to come in from a different context. If you ask the wrong questions, you'll always get the wrong answers. But if you get to the point where you're asking the right questions, now all of a sudden, You can move both your company, your progress with your team, your revenue, all that can move in the right direction. It just comes from a shift of your mindset. That's all? Well, I'm not not here to do a whole show. I'm just throwing on there. And I know Dan would love to jump in on this because this is all right up his alley. Good to see you, my ball brother. Always a pleasure, my friend. I didn't even think about that. That's funny. Yeah, that um, but really I did. Cool Every time we bump into each other at events, we find time to take a picture, and it's either the two of us or it's someone else involved that also is bald and beautiful. Peter <laughs> Freeman, Michael Kushkiri, he's another one. Oh, yeah, yeah cool. that's fantastic. It is. Yeah, amazing. All right. Well, I think Jen has a big question for y'all. All right. So let's start with Richard. What is the number one business lesson that you've learned since March of 2020? Apart from don't buy a business straight a week before <laughs> London lockdown. I think, uh, <laughs> Foresight. I think the thing that I learned the most is that 
people will adapt to change quite quite quickly i think you know as, as the the build up to the pandemic was beginning people were were thinking oh well if this comes in i'm not going to do this i'm not going to do that but when it actually arrived i think there was quite a, a sort of a calm reaction to it, especially in in this country I, I can't speak for what it might have been like in the us or elsewhere but you know there was kind of a, an acceptance of what was going on and then a kind of an attitude of well let, let's just get on with it then and then with that change I think came some sort of changes to the, you know, to the the business practices, things like people accepting the fact that they can now do events and meetings and things like that in a digital setting. I think there was quite a reluctance to do that uh, previous to the, the pandemic. But once people got used to talking to each other on screen, then the need to travel went away, the need to you know, spend all that time and money, you know, the, the environmental reasons for not traveling were, were quite high and the economic reasons for not traveling were quite high. So now that we're in this kind of world where, you know, people are, you know, as an example, doing these types of events online and accepting that, you know, this is this is the way we do things now, then I think the benefits have, have certainly been seen by a lot of businesses and obviously the environmental impact of not having to travel by plane. You know, we used to do events in New York, for example, and you'd have all these different people, myself included, traveling by plane to New York just to meet for, you know, a few hours in the evening to do something that we could quite easily do online now. So I think that was my biggest kind of lesson learned that, uh, you know, people were quite accepting of change and kind of just got on with things, really. Yeah, I agree. Like we've seen people adapt to some pretty wild ways of like just things that were completely unthinkable before the pandemic that it's so simple now, but we how would we ever do that before, you know? Yeah, it's been interesting to witness all of that, the mindset shift. Uh, well, Angus, what about you? What has been the number one business lesson you've learned since March of 2020? Revenue generating activities, it is a critical lifeblood to every business. We spend so much time like focused on like, I gotta get my website just right. And you're on this graphic going, you're messing with the gradients, like I'm just uh, get the gradient to get it. We we work on all this back end stuff. We're trying to do all the systems, and the reality is we forget about. If you're not making money, you don't have a business. And one of the things that happened in all of this, you know, both for me, I lost a job. I had a full-time job while I was coaching. The truth is I was making more money coaching than I was in my daytime job. So it wasn't a horrible thing, but it did play with my head and I freaked out and I realized just keep doing what I've always been doing. And that's, you know, serving and putting the, myself out there and having conversations. And if you're not selling your product or service, if you're not doing the things that actually create cash flow, then you're setting yourself up for failure. And whether you're a small startup business or whether you're a large business, if you take your eye off the ball of actually serving and solving the people that you're here to solve and serve for, you lose. And when you lose, everyone loses. Your business goes away and now your customers can't take advantage of your wisdom and your insight and your zone of genius. And I know so many people who come from our marketing world or our marketing space that are like one paycheck away from insolvency. And it's because they're so focused on personal brand building. They're so focused on, you know, putting out the next piece of content every day. Let's put out more content. Let's record another of this. Let's do another of that. And it's like, is that making money? If it's not converting, then you're not going to be able to do what you're here to do. And right. so doing and focusing on those revenue generating activities is the lifeblood, both for you and those you're here to serve. Wow. 
Yeah, that's a real mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as an AV girl, I don't actually want you to drop your mic, but that was (laughs) another Angus. Yeah, just another Angus moment, I guess. Yeah. Like that that was, (laughs) I like that though. That inspires me for sure. We do get so into our heads about the content creation a lot of the time, but where are you making money? And and gosh, what a thing to... What a way to switch focus. It's kind of that simple. Well, someone actually, it was at at Social Media Week Lima last year who said to me, there's so much pressure to post exactly the right thing and to get the, you know, the picture's got to be just right. And I go, well, how about you take the picture and you you don't actually do anything with it? How about like (laughs) just capture the moment for the sake of capturing the moment without putting any pressure on yourself about where you're going to put it? Like, hello. We used to do that. (laughs) I've learned consistency is way better than quality. And I know a lot of people are going to throw up on that, but (laughs) I I believe it wholeheartedly be true. It's like, get it out there because if 70% is good enough, like just make it, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just get it out there. And so many times people are trying to make everything, all these things that nobody told them to. So we want to go back to the original thing where we're saying asking the right questions versus the wrong questions. Like, do they care? Who cares about this piece of content in the bigger scope of things? Is it telling a story? Is it inspiring? Is it bringing close to your right? Okay, cool. But is it moving them towards a phone call? Is it moving them towards a click? Is it moving to, well, we're like, oh my God, there's so much pressure, just like you were saying, (laughs) to get that thing. And I would tell you, just keep showing up because inbound's way more powerful than outbound. Just show up. You just got to get top of mind. All you need. Hey, I'm here. If you just put that as the bottom line and don't be so worried about the messaging and more about the heartbeat and the culture you're trying to create that... I love you. I believe in you. I'm here for you. Do you need anything? Like that's far more powerful than all the little dance and cool words we use. And I'm guilty. I'm so guilty. I do it too. I'm, I'm <laughs> Did not, you just make you know, fun of TikTok? I mean, this is a, this is an audio <laughs> podcast, so you couldn't see him, but he was doing a little uh, <laughs> a little dance, doing there. it all right. And it's like, why? Why? Yeah. And so I've, I, me and my team, like we're, we've really simplified on our messaging and we're just being consistent. Sometimes it goes on like, nah, it's okay. But then other stuff, it just like, how did that just pop? Somebody just said here in the back. Yeah, Dan, Lisbon is amazing. And yeah. <laughs> if I talk about Lisbon, I'll get way more engagement on my personal stuff than I will talking about the things that I do. And I'll jump into the DMs and we'll have conversations. Right. Those conversations will lead to sales. Yeah. And this is what we forget. Relationship trumps your fucking content. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I love it. All right. So we we, we could talk to y'all forever, but it's Seriously. time to bring our second group in. Thank you so much, Richard and Angus, for being with us. As always, you're welcome to stay and hang out to listen to the rest of the conversation. But otherwise, please enjoy the rest of your evenings. Thank Stick you around. very much. Good to see you again. You guys. You too. All right. Bye, guys. All right. We now have two more guests. Welcome, Dan Gingas and Elisa Camahort page Hello. How you doing, Megan? I was the one to hear like audience, like <sighs> the crowd goes wild. <laughs> um, we are, we're good. We're enjoying summer still, even though football is starting to happen. I refuse. Got the eye on the baseball, right? How are your baseball. Cubbies doing? Oh, <laughs> How are the Cubs doing, Dan? 
Let's just say I haven't watched a single inning all summer, and this is going to be the first summer that's ever happened. What? Wow. Bananas. It's depressing. <laughs> Yikes. Well, I get, I'm going to the Rangers game in two weeks, and that'll be my 28th ballpark. So, and I don't know, my Padres had a pretty good pickup at the end of the. I think they won the trade deadline. Yes. Yeah, they did. <laughs> so that's pretty, been pretty fun too. So let's get to it. We had you both on, actually, you were back to back guests. So Dan's show was Develop Influence Through Shareable Content, episode 96. And so you wrote a little book, which is amazing. Um, and uh, this is kind of like a before, I think, as you were doing your launch. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about your episode. Sure. My name is Dan Genghis, and I spent more than 20 years in corporate America working for companies you've probably heard of, Discover Card, Humana, McDonald's, and started as a marketer, but evolved into a lover of all things customer experience. And today, I like to say that if I never have to do another marketing campaign again, it actually might be too soon because I'd much prefer my customers do it for me. And that's really what I teach is how to create the kinds of experiences that lead to word of mouth marketing, which is really what marketers are all after in the first place. So rather than trying to find the next viral video, I really talk about how to create consistently remarkable experiences because we've all been there. We've all been at an amazing restaurant or an incredible concert. I just went to see Elton John this week at Soldier Field. I mean, it was unbelievable. Nice. And you can't help yourself. You pull out your phone, you take a picture, a video, you want to share it with people and tell people about it. And companies can have the same effect. They can create those kinds of experiences. So that's what I do. And I do it mostly from stage speaking. Uh, but I also do workshops. I teach an online course and I do coaching as well. So honestly, I wake up every morning just thankful that I get to do what I love every day because uh, it is a blessing. Yes, for sure. And you have two podcasts or one? Uh, right now, I'm doing just one. I do experience okay. this with my buddy, Joey Coleman. We're about to launch season 10 in wow. September, wow. and it is still going strong. And we tried to create a very different type of business podcast. We don't do any interviews. Instead, we have three mini segments, about eight to 10 minutes each in each episode, and we tell stories. And the segments are kind of like, if you think about the price is right, it's got a whole bunch of games and they only play a few in each episode. That's kind of what we do. We have about 12 different types of segments and you get three in every episode in some random order. So you never quite know what you're going to get. And that's uh, very intentional. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. It's such a great show. So yeah, and I'll once again, I'll include that in the show notes. One, a quote uh, that stood out for me that I, that I put in the show notes from your episode is a great customer experience strategy is the best way to get people talking about a brand. So not just what color is our logo, not just, but like the actual, you know, meat and potatoes of what your brand is all about, right? Yeah. And if you think about branding and marketing, it's really, I, my new belief is that marketers are really the promisers of the experience. If you think about most of the marketing that we see, most of the advertising we see, it's how are you going to feel when you drink our soda or drive our car or visit us on vacation? It's about that feeling. It's about here's what here's how you're going to experience doing business with us. And so marketers are very important in that sense, in the fact that they've got a promise and experience that the rest of the company can deliver on. But that's really what we're selling, right? We're selling an experience at the end of the day. 
for sure. But then it's also a customer experience is marketing, right? I mean, the experience that you give the customer, meaning to say that person who's on the other end of the line, if, the, if something's gone wrong or, or whatnot, right? Yes. And that's what we talked about in my episode. And that's a lot of the focus of my book, which I should have said was called The Experience Maker. But basically, there's research that shows that consumers, by and large, want to share positive experiences more than they want to share negative experiences. We all wish we had more positive experiences. But the kicker is that two-thirds of customers cannot remember the last time any brand exceeded their expectations. So that's a sad fact, but it's also where the opportunity lies, because you can be that business that exceeds expectations and feeds into the fact that your customers want to share positive experiences. They're just waiting for a great positive one to share because everyone loves to brag about having a great experience. You'll never believe what happened to me when I went out with my you know, spouse at a restaurant last night. You'll never believe what happened. It was amazing. And that's what those are the kinds of stories we love sharing. So as businesses, we just have to be in a position to create those stories for our customers. No doubt. I mean, even someone liking a tweet for me is like, you know, because you take the time to write it and it's just nice to be acknowledged. Dana Carvey liked my tweet recently, which was pretty fun. He also has a podcast with David Spade and he posted about it and I replied that I was listening right then and he liked it. And then, of course, then I screen captured it and I was like, Dana Carvey (laughs) liked my tweet. (laughs) I did the same thing one time when Vaynerchuk, when he was a social media marketing world, he liked one of my tweets and I did the same thing. I screenshotted it and it still pops up every once in a while. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Well, Dana also follows me on Twitter, which is a oh. kind of mystery to me for a while. I don't know why he follows me. But yeah, so that's anyway, so that was kind of a big deal. <laughs> that's huge. That's so cool. Experience, different a kind of experience, right, Dan? But, you know, an experience, none that. But here we're talking about it and loving it, you right. know. Exactly. Exactly. Well, if you have not listened to episode 90, please go back and check it out. I should also have a lot of your other episode loaded. He also was on on season three, I think. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll include the link to to be there twice. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. All right, Miss Elisa. Hello. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and then we'll chat about your episode. Yeah. So my name is Elisa Camelhart Page. I'm out in beautiful San Jose, California. Uh, I've been in tech for about 25 years. And in 2005, I co-founded a company called Blog Her, which was a women's media network and publisher. I was COO and my two co-founders and I ran that for nine years before we were acquired by a bigger media company. And since that point, I pivoted a little bit and wrote a book about activism called Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance Activism and Advocacy for All, and coached and consulted and was doing that for about five years. But actually, just two months ago, I decided to take the plunge back into startup land. So I am the fresh new COO of a company called The Crew, founded by an amazing solo CEO, Tiffany Dufu. And also focused on women's advancement. So I guess that's kind of my jam. Uh Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Exciting. Yeah. Very good. And are you a 49ers fan by any chance? Well, I have, I I grew up a 49ers fan and it has a lot of emotional resonance for me because my stepfather was very, he got us into it, but I have some issues with the NFL. So I have this moral quandary consistently about it. So I, I can definitely 
understand that. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole or anything. But I just thought you'd ask because Jen, she's fan and they're playing the 49ers in Santa Clara in October. Oh, well, that is very, you are in my hood. (laughs) Yes. All right. So yeah, so we could have talked about so many things with you, but we, we did end up doing your episode on, the name of it is How to Engage Positively with the Press or Media. It was episode 95. And so Let's talk a little bit about that, like revisiting that, I guess, I, part of the reason why I wanted that to be, I mean, it's your thing, but also I just, I think it's really interesting for our listeners to hear about what to do a press release on, you know, like what, what gets press um, and, and how that experience with the media can help your brand. Do you remember what, what we talked about? Yeah, well, um, I think the first thing is when you want to get press, Nobody actually cares about your stuff that much. And nobody cares about about what makes your business, what's a great deal for your business. And, you know, the story, I think a common thread we're going to hear here is about stories. And the story has to be something that they think the people they're writing or broadcasting for will care about. And so you have to kind of take yourself two steps removed from yourself. It's not what you care about. It's not even what the journalist cares about. It's what the people they're speaking to care about, about your story. And if you can't find that, like I have no problem issuing statement press releases that are just, you know, so when people look you up, they see a drumbeat of news and they know what's going on with you. It's an information source. I have no problem with that. But there's a difference between that and like expecting your PR firm to achieve miracles about a story that has no hook and has no resonance or to target the completely wrong press audience for it because you don't understand who will care and find the people who are speaking to them. You know, that's for outbound. Like, I feel like it's a really rare case where you people get the PR they want, and it has an actual like impact afterwards. Because a lot of times you work really hard to get PR and you're so excited and then it's just like crickets. And it still goes back to that foundational question about who cares? Inbound, when people are coming to talk to you, I always really advise people to remember that there is such a thing as bad press and it is better to not be quoted in a piece at all rather than to be quoted saying something you didn't plan, you didn't mean, you didn't intend. It isn't within your messaging that you want to have discipline around. And so, and a reporter's job is to get the stuff that's outside your discipline. So there's a little bit of a knocking heads in what people want when you're having those conversations. And it's on you to know what you want to go in there to say and to stay disciplined around it. And to consider that if you don't get quoted saying what you wanted your pull-through messages to be and having those pulled through, then it is better to have them say nothing at all. Such sage advice. I love it. Yeah. And I, I have helping company with a website right now. And and like, there's not going to be any press release. <clears throat> a new website is not that exciting. Right? Like, we're like, <laughs> nobody cares. It's an expectation. Like, I, I think that's kind of an old school of thinking, right? Like it used to be a big deal, but now everyone's changing their websites like every, you know, few months. So right. <laughs> right. that's awesome. Fantastic. All right. I think Jen has a question for you. I do. All right, Dan, what is the number number one business lesson that you've learned since March of 2020? Well, thanks for asking, Jen. What I learned is that customers really care about the companies that are going to be there for them when times are tough. 
We care about who has our back. And we found out who had our back in 2020. We found out which companies were there for us, which were going to take care of us, and which companies just sort of fell completely flat. And one of the stories I love to tell is that in the very early days of the pandemic, when we were all getting those endless emails from every company that had our email address talking about their enhanced cleaning procedures. In fact, it was always the word enhanced. I don't know why they all use the same word. It wasn't improved. It wasn't bettered. It was just enhanced cleaning procedures. And oh, by the way, here's a link to the CDC for the 7,000th time, just because we feel like we should do that. Amidst all of those emails, I got an email from Charles Schwab. I've been a customer of Charles Schwab since 1996. Their email did not mention the CDC, nor did it mention enhanced cleaning procedures. Instead, it mentioned the fact that they supposed that I was probably nervous uh, about the, the stock market and, and given how, how things were changing so rapidly and how the market was going down and everything was volatile. And given that, they wanted to share with me some tools that they had to help me through the volatility. And I was like, that is exactly what I want to hear from Charles Schwab right now, is that they're here for me when it looks like we're going to hell in a handbasket. And here they're here for me. And, you know, there were stories at the time about you know, runs on the on ATM machines and everybody should hoard cash and all this scary <laughs> stuff. And here they are saying, don't worry, we got you. And to me, that was so meaningful. It makes me so proud to be their customer. It makes me not even think about leaving to go somewhere else. And so that's the lesson is that when times are tough, that's the time we need each other the most. And when we need companies that we do business with the most. And yeah, those companies were all having hectic times. They were dealing with employee issues. They were dealing with, you know, not being able to go into the office and systems being down and, you know, continuity plans being blown up in week two. But still, some of them managed to keep their eye on the customer and be there for them. And I think that to me was really remarkable. Yeah, yeah, I I can definitely agree with that. Touching base with people, touching base, making sure, acknowledging that there is a thing, there is an elephant in the room, and it's actually a ginormous elephant that takes over the whole world. And just saying, hey, you know, we got your back. Oh, gosh, I, I really felt that a lot, too, because, I mean, we said uncertain times how many times, but honestly... <laughs> It was pretty uncertain. Well, and the thing is, is that we always talk about empathy as being a key piece of customer experience. If you couldn't have been empathetic during the pandemic when everyone was going through the exact same thing, (laughs) it's not as if you didn't know what your customers were going through. You were going through the same thing. So empathy there was like the easiest it could ever be, but it's amazing how many companies still couldn't show it. Yeah. Scared to mention. (laughs) So well, scared to mention it the right way. (laughs) For sure. All right, Alisa. So what about you? What was the what is a big lesson in business that you've learned since March 2020? Well, I think I love what you said, Dan, first of all, very much and agree. I think that before 2020, things like caring about purpose and meaning and balance and harmony in one's working life was something that in general we thought was reserved for people either at sort of a middle life stage where it was this inevitable thing that you encountered as you went on in your career, or that it was basically an elitist thing that people at a certain level started to say, can't I do more? 
And I think we realized during the pandemic that caring about purpose and meaning and balance and harmony is for everyone. And we also learned which companies and which employers and which managers don't want it to be for everyone and are really bent out of shape when someone who's young or someone who's in an entry-level job or someone who's in a certain sector of our economy cares about things like purpose and meaning and balance and harmony and being treated like a human. And I think that we learned and I learned that every part of your company, people need to feel like they are contributing, that we care about them, that we have their back, as Dan said, that we're thinking about their next step, not just our next quarterly call. And that's for everyone. And that's every single person in society. And people will sacrifice. It's not just someone who's already had like a healthy career and has a bank account who is willing to sacrifice to achieve more purpose and meaning and harmony and balance. Everyone will sacrifice for that once. And what we saw during the pandemic is people getting a taste of that enforced because we were locked down, because there wasn't always a choice and asking themselves, why have I been doing what I've been doing? And could I do it differently? And we don't have to be the company that has all their employees asking that about us. We we can try to be appreciative of that and make a difference. Yeah. Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Here, here. Well, and I think that, yeah, Jen works for a company that's like that. I work for a company that's like that. Yeah, I wish that for for everyone. And I think with your new role, I'm sure you're going to create a culture that's like that. So, well, luckily I'm walking into a culture that's, it's a great, it's still really small, but you've got to think about your culture. Like Tiffany has been doing, if you don't do it when you're at 15 people, you can't come in at 1500 people and say, oh, now I'm going to build an awesome culture. (laughs) It has bake it in when you're small and then be willing to constantly grow it and improve it because it's really hard to move culture ship that's gotten to be huge. Yeah. Right. Eliza, can I jump in with a a question since I'm a podcaster too? Hopefully, it's Elisa, by the way. Megan and John. Elisa, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I noticed in corporate America was that the people who were the best culture builders, the people who were the best people managers were not necessarily the people that got promoted. And that in fact, the people that got promoted tended to be the people that were terrible at managing people. <laughs> and I never quite understood that dynamic because it's you know, not surprisingly, hopefully, I was known as a pretty good people leader. That was one of my best skills. People liked working for me. And yet I watched as, as you went higher and higher in the organization, there were people that had no idea how to build culture. Why do you think that is? And do you think that there's a shift happening where that might change? To answer your second question first, I do think there's a shift happening where people are talking, this word empathy is becoming common business language to talk about how, now some people are talking about how can we implement empathy in a way that will meet our quarterly OKRs, you know, or whatever, (laughs) like, you know, how you implement empathy is is a tougher discussion. But I do think people used to call them soft skills. I always called them leadership skills. Some people <laughs> call them human skills. So, you know, there's a lot of different words for it, but people are realizing that they can make a huge difference. And it's much more part of the business parlance and lexicon than it ever was before. I certainly came up in tech when it didn't exist. And when a hostile, like overall kind of hostile work environment was just accepted as the norm to quote unquote, get things done. So, and I think part of the reason now in some industries, people don't have a sense 
sense of advancement or path if it doesn't include managing more people. And not everyone's cut out for it. I see this in tech a lot. Not the person who's an amazing engineer might not be an amazing manager, but what else is their path to advancement? Now, some companies out here in Silicon Valley have things like principal engineers, fellows. They come up with fancy names that they can elevate people into. And it's not just for show. It's a way of saying, (laughs) we see you, we see how amazing you are. And you have a path to make more money. You have a path to have more credibility and respect. And I think all companies need to find ways to show more credibility and respect and advancement to people who are not cut out for managing people and not reserve the management path just for those that you think are excellent at the job they're already doing, you know? So it's not for everybody, right? And I and I also think that when I co-wrote the book, I had a section I wrote about shareholder value and how it's actually a myth that there is no law that says that public companies have to prioritize shareholder value over everything else. It's a cover your ass kind of try to avoid activist shareholders, try to avoid liability. So in fact, you can consider benefits for your employees to be about enhancing retention and advancement, which is good for shareholder value and so on. You you know, there are companies who do great things for their employees all the time, even though it costs them money. So it's really a myth that everything has to be about the bottom line. And I think in these last few years, that has also become more standard issue. We're talking about this now. We're talking about that profit isn't the only story and that there are other ways to measure your value that matter and are about long-term. And so I think we're in a shift, but I also think some old school people and some old school companies are challenged by that and they may continue to be for quite some time. Awesome. Back to you, ladies. <laughs> no, I love it. Thanks, no, that's Dan. what's up. <laughs> that I was love, good. I, I love good conversation between guests. That's fabulous. Well, we love all your insights once again. I mean, this is great. This is for those who've been listening for a while. This is a very small reunion, this part. But we had fewer guests on season five because I did a few episodes myself, just me. But quality over quantity, any day of the week. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Dan and Elisa, for helping us uh, kick off season six. Thanks. Keep up the good work, Megan and Jen. It's a great show. Thanks so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Jen, I'll see you in part two. I'll see See where she will be. She will be a guest who gets to come back. (laughs) because she also also a guest on 105. (laughs) All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. All right, friends. This has been episode 109 of the Making a Marketer podcast, and we will catch you next time.